Welcome to 100 Plus, an historical overview of 100 of the most important people, places, and ideas of the last 2,000 years. This is a survey of the forces and factors that have shaped today's world, the Christian faith, and you. In today's lecture, we will be focusing on fundamentalism, a many-faceted term and movement. We will uh, consider it mostly as the early 20th century movement that emerges as a pushback against modernity, but we will also note that it expands in a number of different directions since then, most notably when Martin Marty launched the Fundamentalism Project in 1987, which uh, began to track the illiberal movements of all types of groups, uh, both religious and political. What is fundamentalism? The answer to that question depends a great deal on who you ask and when you ask them. In 1956, uh, Billy Graham was asked if he considered himself a fundamentalist, and he replied, If by fundamentalism you mean a narrow, bigoted, prejudiced, extremist, emotional, snake handler without social conscience, then I am not a fundamentalist. However, if by fundamentalist you mean a person who accepts the authority of scriptures, the virgin birth of Christ, his bodily resurrection, his second coming, and salvation by grace through faith, then I am a fundamentalist. However, I much prefer to be called a Christian. In 1985, Jerry Falwell came to speak at Trinity Divinity School. I was in my first year there. Um, and he handed out the inaugural edition of a, a magazine, and it was called something like Fundamentalism Today or Fundamentalist Now or whatever. I don't remember. These were the boom days of the moral majority. Uh, I was told, I don't know if this is true, uh, I was told that Menachem Begin had, uh, had given a jet to Falwell because he was uh, traveling around, because his influence was so helpful um, in, in the U.S., his sort of his mobilizing of conservative Christians was so helpful in a pro-Israeli uh, uh, lobbying effort that, uh, the, that the, the nation of Israel wanted to keep him going. Whether that was true or not, Begin was no longer the, the prime minister of um, Israel at the time. But anyway, he, um, he had this magazine. And uh, he handed it out, and the sort of the premier article in this inaugural issue was, are you a fundamentalist? And it was a quiz. And I remember I took the quiz, and I got virtually every answer wrong. So it was asking questions like, um, do you consider it uh, okay or acceptable, like morally or religiously, ethically, whatever, to go to movies? <laughs> I said, yes. Uh, do you... And here was one that I was a little surprised by. In a debate between a pastor, between your pastor, the, the pastor of the church you attend, and a scholar, are you more likely to favor the pastor or the scholar? And I said, the scholar. And uh, anyway, though I got those wrong. I got a lot of others wrong. I was, I was deemed to be an evangelical, not a fundamentalist, which is, I thought, okay, fine. I don't think I'm a fundamentalist. Um, Glad to take this quiz and see that he doesn't think so either. Um, but 
about 20 years later, I saw an interview with Falwell where they asked him and they said, are you a fundamentalist? And he said, no, I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm an evangelical. And I remember thinking, no, 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 buddy. Wait a minute. You, uh, you ruined your term. Do not come, uh, do not come after mine. Now, in, in recent years, I think we've sort of um, certainly sullied the term evangelical. So I'm not, I'm not sure there's all that much there to say. But I, I, I should say a couple other things about Fawwell because he'll come up later on in this podcast. Um, I, had, uh, I had two other sort of interactions with him. Uh, I was at a youth worker uh, uh, conference. I was speaking at this youth worker uh, national conference in California. I was a breakout, to be clear. I was leading a, a workshop at this thing. Falwell was a headline speaker. And, and so I'm standing next to the president of this group, um, and Falwell's getting up to speak, and I'm getting ready. I, I was actually about to leave, and Falwell, and excuse me, and the, the president says, no, 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 you got to watch this. you got to watch this. This is going to be amazing. So um, they have this, um, and this is, this is, you know, 25 years ago, and they have a video introduction uh, for Falwell by uh, a Bill Clinton impersonator. Clinton is president at the time, and they have this. Uh, they have this uh, Bill Clinton impersonator doing the introduction for Falwell. And initially, he's sort of quite a ways away. And and I actually, he sounded just like uh, President Clinton. I actually thought for a second it was Clinton, uh, but you sort of clue in over the course of, you know, the first 15, 20 seconds that it's not actually Clinton. But it was very funny, and, and uh, this President Clinton impersonator said, uh, my good friend Tony Campanelli, so he gets Tony Campanelli's name wrong, my good friend Tony Campanelli asked me if I would introduce Jerry Falwell. And I said, sure. Uh, he goes, Jerry Falwell and I don't agree on many things. And then he starts into this rant in which he's just saying, he's out of fact, we don't agree on anything. And it becomes this, you know, the, the Clinton impersonator sort of begins to unravel and he's raging against Falwell. And it was all very clever and very funny. So I'm laughing and then the, the president of Youth Worker Journal says, no, watch this. And I go, what? And he says, he says uh, I handed out, as only, as only the president of a youth worker network would do. He goes, I handed out whoopee cushions to the first 10 rows. So Falwell gets up to speak at this event. There's 2,000, 3,000 people there. And you've got just everything working against him. I was amazed. Falwell was so self-effacing. He was so funny. The first thing he says is, because the whole theme of this thing was like a, a 60s theme or a 70s theme. You're supposed to dress like you dressed in the 70s, I think. And Falwell gets up in a black suit and he says, I was told I was supposed to dress like I did in the 70s. He goes, this is how I dressed in the 70s. Uh, and then uh, he's, he's laughing at himself and he's laughing at the introduction and he's laughing at the whoopee cushions. It, it was, I was quite shocked. So um, sometime later, I'm talking with uh, Will Williman. Dr. Williman uh, was the dean of the chapel. He has subsequently retired, but he was dean of the chapel at Duke Divinity School. Yale PhD, written, I don't know, 40, 50 books, 
sort of a premier, mostly mainline, a little bit left of uh, mainline perhaps, uh, Methodist uh, pastor. And when he was the dean of the chapel, he says, I brought Falwell in to speak to the students. And he said, it was amazing. He said, because uh, the students were ready to rip his head off. They were so mad at Falwell, moral majority, everything else. They were so down on this. And he said, Falwell got up there and he says, you know, he says, I, uh, I got this invitation to come and to speak here to you at, at, the, at the chapel at Duke. And I had to think long and hard about whether or not I was, I was you know, willing to do this. I sort of, uh, I knew that there would be a lot of pushback on me if I came. And he said, you know, I, I met uh, the president of Liberty. And he says, Liberty, we have, uh, uh, he goes, you know, we've, we've worked hard. We're poor. Uh, and we've been working really hard to try and, and have uh, racial justice and racial parity. I mean, the student body. And he says, we're, you know, we've not done anywhere near what we are committed to doing. We have, because, you know, 11% of our students are students of color. And he said, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm troubled by that. It needs to be higher. And he said, honestly, I didn't know whether or not I could show up at Duke, where uh, there's only, at this, this 25 years ago, there's only 6% students of color. And he said, uh, I'm going to catch a lot of flack uh, from the people that support me for coming to such a racially uh, prejudiced school. <laughs> and then he pivots from there. And he, and, and Willman says, he won over the crowd, completely won over the crowd. So um, that's not what you would expect, I, I think, in stories about uh, Falwell, certainly not how he came across, but he identified himself initially as a fundamentalist. Okay, so roll this forward. A, a third data point on this whole topic of, you know, what is a fundamentalist? Uh, we've had Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell. So in the late 80s, um, I had the uh, privilege of spending some time with uh, Steve Hayner, who was then the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, and Steve, uh, just, a, just a very thoughtful, uh, wise, um, very godly uh, man, and I was privileged to get time with him. One of the things that he warned me about, I was starting as a college pastor, and one of the things that he warned me about uh, is he said, Mike, you have to work hard to prevent ministries to youth, college students and youth, from becoming too uh, angry and fundamentalist and restrictive. And I didn't really understand what he was saying until I saw it happening. And I saw students, and you know, a lot of young people are very uh, idealistic and they want what's best and they're they're sort of principled along these kind of uh, idealistic grounds. I remember having an interaction with a student who uh, wanted to start a fast, wanted to lead uh, the students in a revival movement, and he wanted there to be a big emphasis on prayer and fasting, and he wanted my help. And uh, I was initially very uh, excited and energized by this, and then he said, it's, we're going to do this biblically. It's going to be a 40-day fast. Well, uh, okay, so if you've spent time on college campuses, you know there's a lot of eating disorders, especially among uh, younger women, and a 40-day fast is just not a good idea. And uh, I found myself in the, uh, 
awkward position of trying to argue against the 40-day fast model that Jesus had set up. Uh, moving forward, uh, another data point. In the, um, in the uh, late 1990s, uh, Dr. Martin Marty, who is University of Chicago, preeminent historian, theologian, public intellectual, uh, I cited Dr. Marty in the intro to my book on the future. Um, he had the whole idea of you got to track, uh, everybody tracks earthquakes. They pay too much attention to earthquakes and everything gets, goes right back to normal after an earthquake. They, they spend a lot less time tracking glaciers because once a glacier moves through, everything's different always and forever. Uh, at one point, Dr. Marty had more honorary PhDs than any other living person. And these were from Harvard and Yale and Cambridge and Oxford and, you know, and, and, and Stanford and these kind of institutions. So in, in 1987, Dr. Marty took on the Fundamentalism Project. And it was a multi-year, multidisciplinary, uh, scholarly, you know, very millions and millions of dollars poured into this project to study fundamentalism. And uh, he said, look, it's, um, it's different. And for a while, it was all this effort to try and define what is a fundamentalist? Like, what is fundamentalism? And uh, he said, fundamentalism is a new force in the modern world. Uh, it's very different from conservative movements in religion. It's unexpected, surprising, fast-moving, puzzling, and urgent. And uh, so he went on and he noted that when, uh, when the U.S. was surprised by the, by the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini, the fall of the Shah, the CIA was caught completely um, on, its, on its heels, did not see the rise of fundamentalism. And at the time, then, fundamentalism, which had previously, uh, the word comes into, comes into the American lexicon in the 1920s around the Scopes Monkey Trial, but it meant Christian conservatives of a particular stripe. Uh, now suddenly, fundamentalism is being used to describe uh, Muslims, and uh, and and then it will go on, uh, and it will be used to to define not just Muslims but others. So, after 9/11, I'm teaching a class at uh, Christ Church uh, on. Islam and uh, war and terror and the Middle East and just trying to make sense of this whole new movement, this new day, because suddenly 9-11 has happened and we're trying to all figure this out. And uh, among the people that I brought in to speak, one was an expert on Islam. So I brought in a Muslim as well, but I brought in an expert, a Christian who was an expert on, uh, on radical Islam. And he was explaining, he said, look, uh, fundamentalism is a, is a slippery term, but somewhere on the scope of things, we say that crosses a line. So he said, imagine someone saying, a religious person, could be a Christian, could be a Jew, could be a Muslim, could be a Hindu, whatever. It, it sort of doesn't matter. But uh, next to your house, somebody buys uh, the building next to your home. And they say, they announce to you that they're going to put in a strip club. And you say, no, 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 you can't do that in this neighborhood. I'm raising young kids. This is not acceptable. And they go, well, I'm going to do it. And you say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you. 
So there's methods to use to try and stop something. One is I'm gonna I'm going to lobby uh, city hall, or I'm going to lobby the zoning board, or I'm gonna fight you in court. Right? All these are within the bounds of acceptable. And then you've got um, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna hire mercenaries that will beat up your your customers, or I am going to I am going to kill you, or I'm going to set off a bomb that will kill everybody that's there, right? So you've got, you've got responses to quote-unquote progress or modernity or changing societal values. And fundamentalism is seen to be an extreme pushback on this surge for cultural change. So... Um, one more just data point. Uh, last year or two years ago, I guess, um, uh, Morton Shapiro, who was then uh, the president of Northwestern University, he's no longer the president, um, he's subsequently retired, but he and a professor, uh, another professor at Northwestern, uh, Gary Saul Morris, Morrison, uh, they wrote a book called Minds Wide Shut. How the New Fundamentalism Divides Us. So this is obviously a play off of uh, the title Eyes Wide Shut, which was a, a movie, maybe it was something besides just a movie with uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. But um, so Shapiro and, and uh, Morrison come out with this pushback on what they see as, for the most part, liberal uh, or leftist illiberal fundamentalism. <laughs> now, Shapiro is, uh, he's, he would identify as a liberal. Now, he's not strong enough of a liberal for some, but he had, uh, when the University of Chicago uh, came out against the, uh, the idea of microaggressions and the idea of cancel culture and all that. So University of Chicago, as universities go, is sort of famous for uh, not backing down from having the most unpopular presenters present on the most unpopular ideas. University of Chicago would say, hey, that's what higher ed is. That's what grown-ups need to do. You need to, the, the idea that you're going to say, this is offensive to me, or this is threatening to me, or this isn't a safe space, that's not what we do at the University of Chicago. At the University of Chicago, we bring in the most unpopular people to speak on the most unpopular topics, and we never blink. So that was what the dean of the University of Chicago said. And in response to that, you got this other premier Chicago institution, uh, Northwestern. And in Northwestern, they said, uh, Shapiro said, that's not what we do. Like, there, we do want the university to be a safe space. So for that, uh, Shapiro got a lot of pushback from the right, saying this is, you know, catering to... Uh, the progressive left to woke culture to whatever. Well, then, uh, a year or so later, uh, in response to uh, his refusal to defund the campus police, okay, so you've got the movement to defund the police, and you have students claiming that uh, the university uh, should defund the campus security. Uh, because there's inherent bias and prejudice and it's not safe, whatever. So in response uh, to this, they marched on uh, Shapiro's house. And uh, Shapiro uh, is a Jew. 
and there were a lot of anti-Semitic uh, chants and other things that were that were thrown out at he and his family, and he thundered back and said, uh, you know, grow up, you're going to get expelled. Uh, this is completely unacceptable. Uh, and he pushed back on this, what he referred to as a illiberal fundamentalism. So in that sense, you've got fundamentalism being used now, uh, not in a religious context, in a political cultural context, and not of the, of the right, but of the left. So um, I could go on, suffice it to say, in their book, so this is uh, uh, Shapiro and, and his co-author Morrison, they say that uh, they describe a fundamentalist as somebody who professes a doctrine with complete certainty. So they are, they are confident that they know exactly what is true. Uh, they believe also in the perspicuity of truth. So perspicuity, you might recognize that word from, uh, from the reformers who advocated what they called the perspicuity of scripture. So perspicuity just means it's the, the basics are clear, like you should, everybody should be able to understand the, the, the foundational truth. So a fundamentalist would say, look, uh, I'm absolutely certain that I'm right, and I'm absolutely certain that the ability to see the truth it should be clear for everyone. And uh, often, and then the third thing they said is, often there is some acceptance of, of a text that is the definitive uh, word, whatever that is. So for on the right, of course, that would be, uh, in the Christian context, that would be the Bible, and Muslim context would be Quran, and in other contexts, it could be a, a letter, it could be the speeches of a certain person, whatever. So um, they also describe, this is uh, uh, Morrison and, and uh, Shapiro, they also described uh, fundamentalism as the radical simplification of complex questions and the inability to learn either from experience or opposing views. And then they warned that we are headed into this, uh, this period of fundamentalism in which politics is now war conducted by other means. And they said, fundamentalist thinking is utopian, if not apocalyptic. Uh, one knows the truth, and those who disagree are ignorant, evil, or insane, and all goodness belongs in one's own camp. So back to the initial question, what is a fundamentalist? Um, I repeat, it depends on who you ask. and when you ask them. For our purposes, in light of this broad survey, 100 of the most important people, places, and ideas, I want to spend most of my time thinking about the fundamentalist movement that rises up in the early part of the 20th century. This is, uh, after all, uh, episode 78 out of 100. We've been tracing Western civilization. The previous episode, we were looking at the very beginning of the 20th century with the rise of uh, coming out of the Azusa Street um, uh, revival, looking at the rise of Pentecostalism. So uh, now we're looking at the rise of fundamentalism. And uh, again, this word, Marty, uh, Dr. Martin Marty, in his uh, work said that they could not find the word fundamentalist or fundamentalism before it appeared in 1920 in a small um, Baptist publication. So that's sort of where the idea of fundamentalism comes. 
Uh, it also is going to be associated very specifically with the Scopes monkey trial, which took place uh, around then. So I want to I focus there, and then I'll say some other things about these other types uh, or manifestations of fundamentalism uh, at the end. So in order to understand this, we have to back up just a little bit in the late 19th century uh, in order to understand the context. So fundamentalism is, by almost everybody's definition, it is a reaction to a, a push uh, in a particular direction. So the people that are getting pushed are pushing back, and that is often seen as the fundamentalist impulse. So what you have rising as we get into the late 19th and then in the early 20th century is modernity. Now, this is going to be confusing. Uh, many people think of modernity uh, as a good thing, holy good thing. Uh, modernity represents science and advancement and you know, medical care and education and all those things as opposed to the bad uh, past. So this, but this, this is more complicated than just saying people on the right often look back on the past and say those were the good old days, and they look forward and saying we're headed in the wrong direction. I mean, we hear that today, right? Uh, mostly those saying these were the good old days are conservatives, if not conservative whites, because obviously you don't look back in the uh, you know into the 19th century or in the 18th century. Uh, if you are a person of color and think that those were the good old days. People on the left, on the other hand, uh, look back and say the, back, the, the past was bad and the, the future is all good and we're headed in um, you know, utopian directions and you've got to get on the right side of history and we're trending in all the right directions. The, the reason this is complicated is because today, modernity represents a unique period of time which, um, which in intellectual history is going to be characterized a lot by advances in science and belief in technology and a very Western uh, framework of logic and philosophy. And now you get a lot of pushback from the, I'll call it the left, for lack of a better um, adjective, I guess, you get a lot of pushback from postmodern people. And so uh, postmodern people would say, truth is not necessarily inherently logical. Truth is my truth. It's my lived experience. I get to define what is true for me and, and move in a different direction. So you get a lot of pushback on modernity from the left now as well as from the right. But in the initial context of fundamentalism coming out of the early uh, 20th century, you're having a pushback on modernity as it is being championed by the post-enlightenment thinkers. And so they're saying things like, uh, you know, with a little bit more time, a little bit more science, we're going to fix all our problems. Man is the measure of, of all things, not God. We don't need religion. Give us just a little bit more... Um, Give us just a little bit more time to sort of dial things in with a little bit more education. Heaven is going to break out on earth. We're all going to get along. We're all going to hold hands. We're all going to sing Kumbaya. And again, I've argued 
Nietzsche was the one who just said, oh, that's just a whole lot of Tommy rot. Uh, if you get rid of, of the Christian halo effect, if you get rid of the idea that humility is a good thing, if you get rid of the idea that we should care for the poor, if you get rid of the idea that we should love our neighbors, if you get rid of these things, you're not going to have a wonderful, let's all hold hands and get along. You're going to have uh, a doggy dog Machiavellian world in which power is all that matters. And, and of course, the 20th century sort of proved Nietzsche to be right. But back up into the 1850s, 1860s, at this point, America is, and I'm now I'm, I'm going to have to, to, to argue mostly white America it is uh, advocating a Christian worldview, a Judeo-Christian ethic, almost an evangelical ethic. The Bible is the word of God, uh, and we need Protestantism to grow. Now, again, if you've been following, you know that, look, there's, there's a lot about uh, Christendom that I want to celebrate. It's a lot better than I think it gets portrayed in a lot of settings, and, and increasingly a, a growing list of secular historians and others are making that case. But we got to be very upfront and say there's a whole lot of things that were happening um, under the auspices of the church that were just wrong and that were unthinkably wrong. And so, um, but you had a church culture and higher education up until uh, Abraham Lincoln signs the Morrill Act in, I think, 1860 or 62, um, which funds higher education for the first time out of the state, sets up the land-grant universities. Up until uh, the Morrill Act, what, what you have is all higher education is being funded by the church. It's being funded by Christians. It's a Christian project. And uh, it, was, it was started again. All these universities were started in order to train clergy. Uh, and it started because all truth is God's truth. And it started because um, theology is the queen of sciences. And we need, you know, natural theology is just what we call science. And you study the heavens. You study creation in order to better understand the creator. But when we get into the second half of the 19th century, now you have, uh, you have challenges to that. You have the rise of Darwinian thinking. You have the rise of German uh, higher critical thinking, theological thinking. So we talked about capital L liberalism, which is the theological movement. So you get this rise of, of uh, all of this coming to push back on this claim that the Bible is the word of God and we need to follow the word of God. And so all these uh, German higher critics and by the way, when we talk about critics, we talk about biblical criticism, we're talking about several different approaches to Bible study. So there are what we call lower forms of criticism, so textual criticism or a literary criticism. Um, so I, I've got no problem with textual criticism. I don't do it anymore. It's sort of it's sort of a spent science, but, but you study to try and understand, looking at all the different manuscripts that we have to make sure that we've got dialed in sort of, you know, perfectly what the New Testament text says. 
and uh, literary criticism is looking at, at word choices and uh, other things, redaction criticism, to understand, is this the writing of Paul? Is this the writing of Peter? And how do we, how do we understand who might have finished certain things? You've got all these. Some of them are fine, good, helpful uh, tools that, that academics and scholars can use to better understand the text. Some of them become very uh, dismissive of any sense of claim that the Bible is a unique book. Uh, I always say, look, the Bible, on one hand, the Bible is just a book. Nouns are nouns and verbs are verbs, and you've got to read it in context to understand what the original author intended the original reader to understand. On the other hand, the Bible is the Word of God, and it's, it's divinely inspired. In fact, not just inspired, the, the, the Greek term would be expired. It's the breath of God. And so um, some of these types of criticism are very, um, uh, they, they, have a, they have a strong anti-supernatural bias. There is no God. There is no um, ultimate reality. There's no ultimate truth. There's no possibility of miracles. Jesus is not, wasn't born of a virgin. Right? They would just dismiss all of this out of hand. No prophecy could be fulfilled. You have to date books later to say, if, if this book, we thought it was written here and it predicts something that actually happened, well, it just means that it was written after that actually happened, but they said it was written back here, right? So you've got different kinds of criticism, but higher criticism is the more caustic, the more um, anti-supernatural, anti-Christian uh, criticism. And so you've got all this higher criticism that is entering into the universities. And so what happens is the church splits into two groups, and you have those that are going to identify with uh, the higher critics, those that are going to identify more readily and quickly with modern society and progress and going to look forward and going to embrace and dismiss the sort of traditional orthodox views of the Bible. And then you've got those that are going to say, no, I'm, I'm holding on to this. I believe that this is true. I don't quite, I don't always know what to do with some of these other pieces, but uh, I believe that in the end, this will all sort of reconcile itself. So you've got, we'll say, and I don't mean this in, in negative senses here, but you've got liberals and you've got conservatives. So liberals, capital L, again, this is a theological movement. I'm not using the term interchangeably with political ideology. So you've got, you've got liberals and you've got conservatives. And uh, they're going to have uh, a number of different arenas in which they are going to uh, fight against each other. They're going to have battles. The Presbyterians and the Baptists sort of take the lead in these battles. And to some extent, not exclusively, but to some extent, you have the northern churches becoming uh, liberal and the southern churches being more conservative. Now, there are exceptions. Princeton Seminary, um, and Princeton Theological Seminary is now a completely distinct institution from Princeton University. At the time, they were together, um, but Princeton Seminary uh, had some pr premier conservative theologians, B.B. Warfield, uh, A.A. Hodge, and others who were writing, and who are in the North, but are very uh, conservative, evangelical uh, 
in their in their thinking. And uh, you have some that are down south that are more um, liberal. But for the most part, you have mostly more conservatives in the south and liberals in the north. <clears throat> and they're going to have uh, tussles over theological issues. Initially, uh, what's going to happen is you're going to have um, the Northern Baptists are going to come out with a five-point declaration. So they've got some ability because of the way, the polity that they have. They had more control over the clergy. Uh, in, in churches that are more independent, you've got less denominational control over who the pastors are in any individual church. So initially, the North has got some conservatives in there in positions of power, and they are going to say, look, uh, you have to, in, in order to remain in the denomination, you have to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Jesus, Christ's substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection, and the authenticity of biblical miracles. <clears throat> now, as an aside, I don't use the word inerrant. Uh, I, I don't. I, I would argue that um, I want to I talk about the authority of the Bible and the word inerrant, it's a double negative and it tends to pull you, it, it tends to have some baggage that I don't want to, I don't want to own, um, but I'm very comfortable saying that I believe that in the end, when all truth is known, we will find that the Bible uh, in the original autographs, so the, you know, the the original writings, the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Original autographs properly interpreted are always true in what they claim. I, I, I have a high view of Scripture. I, I, I don't use the word inerrant, but they're arguing for a high view of Scripture. So um, there was a big rallying around these as being points that everybody needed to hold on to. Now, you might look at this list and say, well, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. That's, I mean, there's a lot of things that are not included there, and that's true. This was not, this was not meant to be any definitive creed. This was just, these were the flashpoints between which the, the, the conservatives and the liberals were fighting. Uh, so a little while later, what happens, uh, and now we're sort of jumping into the early 20th century, you have, um, you have an oil man, <laughs> so this guy, uh, Lyman Stewart, uh, Southern California oil guy, and he wants to sort of further solidify these, uh, these five points. He wants to solidify the conservative position. So he hires, he's got lots of money, he hires the best theologians, the best writers, uh, and they publish uh, a dozen or more books, booklets that are called the fundamentals. And these fundamentals uh, are sent. Three million copies of these books are sent out to every pastor, missionary, professor, director of the YMCA, because that, of course, at the time was still quite, uh, quite a young men's Christian association, quite evangelical in its mission. Every college professor, every Sunday school superintendent, every religious editor of a Sunday school uh, publication, he, they sent these booklets out. And these booklets represented uh, the fundamentals. And if you agreed with the fundamentals, 
uh, then you were considered a fundamentalist. Now, about a third of the fundamentals were around topics of higher criticism. They were critiquing the anti-supernatural bias uh, of higher critics, the German theologians. The other two-thirds were positive affirmations of uh, all kinds of doctrines. Now, um, the next thing that happens is we go into World War I. And as you can imagine, you come out of World War I, and there's, there is now some, some stoked, conservative, patriotic uh, energy that's very anti-German, right? I mean, the Germans are sort of bad guys in World War I and World War, World War II. Uh, so the Germans, um, nobody likes the Germans, and so you got all these German higher critics, and so there's pushback on that. Um, and you get the zeal that's going to actually lead into the prohibition movement. You got a lot of religious energy that is going to be directed into um, various things. This is also going to carry us into the Scopes monkey trial. So uh, now let me just pause. I don't want to go to the Scopes just yet. So, so um, part of the challenge here is that the word fundamental fundamentalist, uh, fundamentalism, this is not a biblical term. So it doesn't get defined by, uh, by the Bible. It gets, it's, the term is more fluid. And as I think you probably recognize, uh, certainly George Orwell uh, says as much in his, uh, in his writing on political language or whatever that essay is called, uh, a lot of these battles take place around who gets to define the words. So uh, the word fundamental, I mean, initially, I, I've never seen any copies. I keep thinking it, if I go to some garage sale, I'm going to find an old copy of the fundamentals. I never have. I've been told that I wouldn't have any problem with these books. They're dated now, but I wouldn't have any problem with what they're arguing theologically. Uh, but obviously, I don't, I don't consider myself a fundamentalist because the, the term took on very different meanings. Uh, over time. So um, some people did not want to use the term ever. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, who's a sort of a prominent, uh, thoughtful conservative, writes a very important book called On Liberalism. Uh, he does not want to use the word fundamentalist, even though he agrees with the fundamentals, because it's not a biblical term. Uh, and what happens is those pushing from the other side, for instance, the Christian Century magazine, so just note, because here's the Christian Century, which is still in publication today, comes out of Chicago. Um, it's more of a mainline, um, so more um, liberal uh, in, the, in the theological sense of a publication. Uh, Christianity Today sort of came as a counter to the Christian Century. The Christian Century is thoroughly embracing modernism, and when it gets formed in the early part of the 20th century, the argument is with science, with education, with technology, the, the 20th century will be the Christian century. Everybody is going to get along. It's going to be great. Uh, the ethics of Jesus. People are going to follow and embrace the ethics of Jesus, and, and we're going to have everybody being nice to everybody else. 
because people are inherently good, they're not bad, and so good things are going to happen. So um, the Christian century comes out, and it is very critical of fundamentalism, and it calls it a cult. Uh, then um, you, have, uh, you have Clarence Darrell pushing back on it. So William Jennings Bryant, who is a politician, he actually will run for president, he's got some cabinet position uh, before that, he's a famous lawyer, uh, and he's a famous fundamentalist. And he is going to take up the case uh, in Kentucky of a high school, uh, supposedly it's a biology teacher. It's actually a football coach. He never taught biology, but they, this is not, there's, there's no scandal here. This is the way these things happen. The ACLU wants to push back on a law that makes it illegal to teach evolution. And so they need somebody who's going to come forward to represent them, and they end up with this football coach uh, who had never actually uh, taught, um, who had never actually taught um, <laughs> evolution. But in court, it was claimed that he had, and, uh, and so you end up with this big, um, you end up with this big uh, lawsuit. And William Jennings Bryan uh, is going to be the guy who is going to uh, argue to defend the law and Clarence Darrow and and prosecute uh, and prosecute um, this uh, Scopes and uh, you're going to have uh, Clarence Darrow who is a prominent sort of agnostic and a, and a lawyer he is going to defend uh, John Scopes against the charges of breaking this law it's called the Butler Law and. And this is right as radio is coming on, and so the, the, the whole thing is going to be uh, televised. It's going to be broadcast, and the world listens in, and in spite of the fact, actually, that Bryant wins the case, uh, fundamentalists lose. Clarence Darrow makes William Jennings Bryant look, look like a country bumpkin, like a backwards, uh, anti-education kind of guy. And so uh, 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 you, have, uh, you have a pushback against fundamentalism, and it begins to get a negative connotation. Around uh, this time, you also have, um, and we just, we just actually had the 100th anniversary, May 21st, uh, uh, 2022, was the 100th anniversary of a very famous sermon that was preached by um, Harry Emerson Fosdick who was a very influential pastor. And the, the title of his sermons was, uh, uh, Are We Going to Let Fundamentalists Win? Shall Fundamentalism Win? And uh, so Fosdick was a young, uh, bright, 34-year-old, uh, uh, very ambitious uh, pastor. And he had been the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in New York City. He'd actually been let go by that church uh, because he was he was a little bit too um, uh, he wanted a little bit too much publicity. He was willing to rock the boat. He sort of wanted a national stage. And this congregation they didn't necessarily disagree with the things that he was saying, but they didn't. That's not who they wanted to be their pastor. And so he ends up um, uh, Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller of all people, who likes. Christianity for its social control, for the way it keeps people in line, for the idea that if 
if I'm a, if I'm a Christian, I'm more likely to be a good citizen and work hard and, and uh, not sleep around, whatever. Uh, Rockefeller wants the ethics of Jesus, so he builds this massive cathedral uh, for Fosdick in New York City. Um, and this is uh, Riverside Church. Uh, at the time, he put in $4 million to do this. It's, it was today's number, about $60, 70000000 million to build this mon- just massive uh, cathedral. And Fosdick is going to preach there. And, uh, and uh, he is going to challenge the idea uh, that the fundamentalists should, should be able to win. He's going to claim that it's uh, all a bunch of nonsense and that we need to be good, modern people looking ahead, believing in progress, believing that people are inherently good. So um, so all of that then uh, is, is sort of, all of that is happening, the Fosdick sermons, the, the fights, the, the Scopes Monkey Trial, all of that is happening, and uh, the result is fundamentalism becomes a bad term. It becomes solid. And so at that point, you have the split between the mainline theological liberals who are modernist, progressive, looking forward, um, embracing higher education in any direction that it leads, and you have the, and, and, and very much engaged in society, and then you have the more conservatives that are withdrawing from society, forming their own institutions, uh, saying, you know, we got to stay away from education. All of this stuff is, is evil and it's corrupt and it's taking us down the wrong path. And, uh, and what's going to happen is, is between these two groups, <laughs> between the liberals and the conservatives, between the progressives and the fundamentalists, you're going to have emerge the evangelicals. And uh, evangelical um, is, and Billy Graham is going to sort of champion this. Again, this is sort of in line at this point with Princeton Theological Seminary at the time. Um, you're going to have, uh, you're going to have uh, this, this statement that, look, we need to be in the world but not of the world we need to pursue higher education, but we've got to understand that some of it is ideologically freighted and maybe leading in the wrong direction. And the fundamentalists, for the most part, so some of this is a caricature. There's, there's good things about the fundamentalists. Uh, there's things about fundamentalists that we could celebrate. They're not all Westboro Baptist Church kinds of advocates. That's the, that's the caricature. But you have um, fundamentalists sort of withdrawing, and you'll actually get what is called the two degrees of separation withdrawal. So Billy Graham will actually sort of force this. So Billy Graham is holding these crusades, and he's got Presbyterians and Catholics and Episcopalians and all kinds of people coming to his crusades, and some of them are quote-unquote liberals. And the more conservatives are saying, you cannot be involved with them. You not only have to be theologically with us, you cannot associate with them. And we, if you're going to associate with them, we're not going to associate with you. We're going to have two degrees of separation. And so you see the, the birth of all these uh, 
Bible colleges, for the most part, not necessarily true today, schools go in all kinds of different directions, but for the most part, institutes like a Bible institute or a Bible college was more of a withdrawal from the uh, higher education track that had been a Christian enterprise before the, the right would say it was co-opted by the left. So um, a few other things to note here. So one of the, one of the big uh, names uh, that is important here in the founding of the evangelical movement back in the, in the 40s is Carl F.H. Henry. So he is going to famously critique fundamentalism and say, you, you are withdrawing from the world and you're withdrawing from issues of justice and you're withdrawing from things that we have been called to and I cannot follow you down that path. Um, so uh, Fuller Seminary will emerge at this point uh, as a, sort of a desire to not be fundamentalist and not be, uh, uh, not be uh, mainline. Um, and then as we move later on, we're going to end up with um, the word fundamentalism starting to jump out of the, in, in the Christian context and to be used uh, basically of anybody that is today, uh, anybody that's to the right of you tends to get called a fundamentalist. So I get called a fundamentalist by some people. And I'm like, <laughs> you don't understand what you're saying. C.S. Lewis, uh, I saw something where he was called an Anglican fundamentalist. So um, all kinds of people get called fundamentalists. The term has lost all uh, significant meaning. But then what happens? So you've got the, the emergence of this evangelical movement. John Stott and Billy Graham and Carl F. H. Henry and others. Then you will have Jerry Falwell coming back onto the scene. Now I talked about him at the beginning. Falwell in the 70s and 80s will form the moral majority, identify as a fundamentalist, but want to enter into politics. For a while, the fundamentalists they wanted nothing to do with politics. They wanted to withdraw from everything. Falwell is the one that's going to bring them back in to politics. And, um, and argue that we've got to be there, we've got to sort of, uh, you know, take ground. And um, so um, that's a lot. Obviously, uh, I've now sort of said that at that point, I, you know, fundamentalism is going to split and you're going to have those that are going to go with the moral majority and some evangelicals are going to overlap with that and everything is sort of bifurcating and getting smaller and smaller. Um, let me just say that uh, the term fundamentalist now is used, again, it's used of Buddhists, it's used of Hindus, it's used of Jews, it's used of, of liberals. Progressives can be uh, illiberal liberals. You say, you do not have the right to free speech. You cannot say that. You're going to be canceled if you say that because I know absolutely what the truth is and, and what, what I say is true and there can be no discussion. So you're going to see this fundamentalist mindset spread, and uh, it's going to be pushing back on modernity from all sides. So to go to Harry Emerson Fosdick's question, have the fundamentalists won? Because that was his question. Shall we let the fundamentalists win? For the next 50 years, it sure looked like the mainline uh, won. Uh, well, maybe the next 40 years. But then it started to look like 
The conservatives won, which Fosdick might say were fundamentalists, again, because, you know, everybody to the right of me is a fundamentalist. Uh, in the late 20th century, we've got uh, all kinds of fundamentalism that is surging, and I think it's important for us to understand that. Is there anything good to be said about fundamentalism? Well, uh, again, yes. When it comes to Christian fundamentalists, I appreciate the fact that they, they believe in truth uh, and they believe in the Bible. Um, they have some backbone. And uh, uh, so I appreciate all those things. I, I generally find myself moving away from anything that looks like fundamentalism to me because I think there can be a very uh, wooden understanding of Scripture that I don't want to affirm. And, uh, and yeah, I have said a lot. Let me, uh, I'm, I'm going to pivot here and say that uh, I think fundamentalism, if, if I was going to define it, uh, I would say fundamentalism is often born of fear and anger. And it is a response to being pushed into having your position threatened. And as a Christian, uh, I don't feel the need for fear or anger. Like, I want to process those emotions and say, I, that's not what I want to characterize me. So, uh, covered a lot of ground. I hope that's helpful. Next up is either going to be a, an interview uh, with um, uh, Robert McKenzie, a professor at Wheaton, who wrote a book called uh, We the Fallen People. Uh, or it's going to be a lecture on secularism. And as I come back and do these uh, podcasts, um, the, the topics ahead of me, as I look at the next 20, uh, they're heavy and long and complicated, and the world's more complicated. And so I'm going to just, I'm going to start to supplement my, um, my lectures with interviews uh, on, a, on a handful of topics. I'm going to try, God willing, to keep a pace of one podcast per week. So that's it. Have a great week. See you next week.